We have to find ways as a policy matter to ensure that manufacturers have incentives to create low-cost, old standby drugs alongside new and higher-cost drugs, and in that way ensure that the industry has what it needs to treat patients in optimal ways. That's Dr. Andrew Norton talking about what oncologists can do to support patients during drug supply chain issues. We'll hear more from him later when Fierce Pharma's Zoe Becker continues her series on the ongoing chemotherapy shortage sweeping the nation. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, August 4th, and here's Zoe Becker to help me share this week's top biopharma and medtech industry news. Thanks, Zoe, for sharing the news rundown with me today. Yeah, no problem. We have a couple of interesting gene therapy stories that I wanted to tell you about. The first story was reported by Helen Flourish. Scientists have revealed a promising new mRNA-based gene therapy for sickle cell disease. And what makes this gene therapy unique is that it can potentially correct the gene mutation causing sickle cell in human cells with just one injection. Wow. How does that work? Well, Helen wrote that the therapy uses an mRNA-based in vivo gene therapy, which is similar to the technology used in COVID-19 vaccines. And in a trial, the therapy showed around 90% effectiveness in converting the disease-causing gene mutation into a non-disease-causing variant. Wow, that would be amazing because most therapies involve many steps, even chemotherapy or a stem cell donor. One injection could be a real breakthrough. Yes, and it would cut down on the need for bone marrow transplants and long hospital stays, and not to mention the potential for a more affordable treatment for sickle cell disease. Another exciting story by Helen Florsch talks about a new device being tested in diabetic mice. It is a battery-powered device that can stimulate gene expression in cells, prompting them to produce insulin. This introduces a new possible vision for a future where wearable electronics could program cell and gene therapies. What is that called? Tell me more about it. The device is called DART, which is short for Direct Current Actuated Regulation Technology. It uses electric current to stimulate bioengineered cells. Electricity is already being used in gene therapy to deliver DNA into cells without the need for a viral vector. But until now, no one has really created a battery-powered device that can fine-tune gene expression in cells implanted in live animals. To shift focus a bit, Johnson & Johnson has been informing clinicians of potential dangers and now fatalities linked to miniaturized heart pumps developed by its Abiomed division. Uh, the Impella pumps, which are thinner than a typical chopstick, are threaded into the heart's chambers to help take some of the workload off a weakened cardiac muscle. And what's been happening? Yeah, so the trouble lies solely in patients that have also had an implant to replace one of their heart valves. The small pump houses an impeller that spins very quickly to move blood through the heart. And this past month, both Johnson & Johnson and the FDA reported a small number of cases where pieces of the replacement heart valves have entered the ports of the impeller pump, breaking off the spinning blades. And fracturing the device can cause a dangerous loss of pumping power, as well as spread pieces of debris into the bloodstream. The FDA recently tallied 26 reports of patient injuries and four deaths related to the issue. All I can think of any time I hear about this story is an impeller in a diesel engine. 
so I can imagine it. And I, it's, I think it's similar in a heart pump. So what have J&J and the FDA been doing about it? Well, as Connor Hale reports, there's been a recall, but not in the traditional sense where devices need to be returned or replaced by the manufacturer. There are nearly 8,000 Impella devices in, distributed in the U.S. J&J sent word to surgeons reminding them to be aware of the risks and to make sure the system is not spinning while being positioned within the heart to avoid any dangerous collisions. This year, drug treatments for Alzheimer's disease are moving forward, but they're also opening the door for new diagnostics, like another story Connor Hale reported this week on a simple blood test that may offer a glimpse into what's happening inside the brain. So can you tell us about that? Well, a blood draw could be a lot easier on a patient than a high-powered brain scan or drawing fluid from within the spine. Fierce MedTech has been following several companies looking to develop an Alzheimer's screening test, and now Quest Diagnosis has announced plans to sell one directly to the public. Connor Hale wrote that Quest's AD Detect test is not a diagnostic per se, but it does offer people the chance to check their blood for minute amounts of beta amyloid. Those are the proteins that can clump up in the brain and have been linked to early stages of Alzheimer's. Quest says an official diagnosis requires a medical professional and that its tests can only identify potential risk factors. So this is almost being pitched along the same lines as a health and wellness test? Yeah, that's right. It's available without a prescription and customers can order it from Quest for about $400. The company said the test is geared towards anyone with a family history of Alzheimer's or anyone experiencing memory loss or cognitive decline. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing the news with me today. Yeah. It's been months since hospitals and oncology centers began running dry of several critical cancer drugs. Those drugs are cisplatin and carboplatin. And this is our second installment of a special series by Zoe Becker on this drug shortage. The FDA is taking steps to mitigate the scarcity, such as allowing some temporary imports and allowing India's Intus Pharmaceutical to resume production after previously being deemed deficient. But the shortage isn't showing signs of letting up anytime soon. It reads like a doomsday scenario. In order to ration the drugs, doctors are being forced to prioritize which patients can receive these treatments. To find out how oncologists can adapt to meeting patients' needs, Zoe Becker spoke with Dr. Andrew Norden, who is the chief medical officer at OncoHealth, and here they are. So I have seen reported time and time again that these cancer drugs that are in shortage, specifically carboplatin and cisplatin, are extremely crucial to cancer care. Um, the National Cancer Institute estimates that up to 20% of cancer patients are receiving these platinum-based chemotherapies that I mentioned. Um, so just to get a better, pi- a better picture, can you tell me how this shortage would impact an oncologist day-to-day in treating patients? Yeah, absolutely. I can. So the, the drugs that are currently being affected by the shortages represent some of the longest available drugs that are used in an enormous proportion of cancer treatment regimens. There are other drugs that have also been impacted by shortages recently, but those two platinum drugs, cisplatin and carboplatin, are most severely affected. And those are drugs that are used commonly for all sorts of patients with cancer, um, people with lung cancer, ovarian cancer, testicular, breast, head and neck, even my own specialty, brain tumors in some circumstances. 
um, as well as some hematologic malignancies. So these are really commonly used and they're often administered in combination with other drugs. So as you can imagine, if standard treatment for your disease requires use of carboplatin or cisplatin, and you're told by your oncologist today that that drug is not available, and he or she is unsure what is the optimal alternative, that can cause some really serious concern. So since these drugs have been around for so long and are really used as baseline treatments, um, I'm sure they've been in shortage before, but is this something that hospitals have prepared for at all? You're right that they've been in shortage before. And I wish I could say that we prepared adequately, but the fact is that these shortages are as severe as any that have occurred in, in the last 50 years, to the best of my knowledge. Um, unfortunately, I think the reality is that it's not up to individual hospitals or providers, really, to be able to prepare in a way that avoids this. Like most drugs, cancer drugs expire after a period of time. And as a result, you need a continuous refreshing supply from suppliers. Um, and, you know, I think given that we really need government interventions to ensure that there is an adequate supply chain for these drugs that, that doesn't risk interruption in case one supplier, for example, is shut down by the FDA, as has happened in this case, or goes out of business. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned that in a June letter to health plan, health plan providers that OncoHealth is advocating for policy interventions to you know, reduce the frequency of these terrible shortages. Um, are there any specific policy interventions that you think are necessary? There are really two different types of policies that we're thinking about here. The first is what governmental policy changes could be contemplated to prevent shortages like this from happening in the future. And I am not a policy guru, um, but you could imagine, for example, that there are regulatory changes that would mandate some sort of support for manufacturers of these critical drugs that are currently in short supply or would prop up the economics for those manufacturers in such a way that they are incentivized to ensure that their supply chains um, aren't interrupted. You could uh, imagine scenarios like we've seen in recent uh, months where regulators decide that they will allow importing of these drugs from countries perhaps that uh, we previously did not import from. At OncoHealth, our focus is on supporting utilization management of cancer drugs on behalf of health insurance plans. Another way to say that is that we enable prior authorization reviews. What's happening now is oncologists are needing to make some unusual changes to the treatment regimens for their patients because of the shortages. And so what OncoHealth is doing is applying an unusual level of flexibility in our reviews. That is to say, we're not holding oncologists 
to the letter of the guideline or the letter of the published manuscript um, in the medical literature. Instead, we're saying, is this oncologist making a rational substitution request that to our internal expertise uh, is likely to benefit the patient? Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Um, I mean, I know this is kind of a broad question, but how risky is it to switch patients when they don't have these baseline options to fall back on? The way cancer treatment regimens are developed is that they are tested in clinical trials. And those clinical trials uh, can take years to perform and can cost millions or tens of millions of dollars. As a result, not every possible combination can be tested in a large-scale clinical trial that generates really high-quality evidence of the sort that we routinely look for in making assessments and in deciding to approve therapy on behalf of, uh, of the insurer. As a result, um, there are combinations of treatment being made available to patients now or being requested for patients now that have not been tested in large-scale clinical trials. And the best one can do is make an educated assessment of the potential risks and benefits of, a, of making a swap. So for example, carboplatin is typically used, but the carboplatin shortage in some parts of the country recently has been more severe than the cisplatin shortage. So instead, I would like to use cisplatin instead. Chemically, carboplatin and cisplatin have a lot of similarities. So it is reasonable to imagine that in most scenarios where one is using carboplatin in a multi-drug regimen, that you could replace it with cisplatin in that regimen and have similar efficacy. Do I know it for sure? I do not, um, but it's reasonable to imagine. And so oncologists all over the country are making switches like that as we speak. One of the problems with that approach, though, is that we also know that some drugs have different side effect profiles than other, others, even if they're chemically similar, like carboplatin and cisplatin. And that's part of the, you know, that's part of really the reason this is so concerning. It may be the case that efficacy is similar, but that side effect profiles are worse, and therefore patients are going to experience worse quality of life and maybe even be left with long-term side effects that they wouldn't have if the standard drug had been available. Right. Something I've heard, I've been hearing about a lot is, um, you know, having to prioritize patients who can get these treatments. Um, I guess I'm wondering how that kind of works in practice and maybe what are some of the guidelines for that? And if that's something that maybe leaves oncologists with some like internal conflicts about, you know, having to follow the guidelines, but something maybe that they would have rather done instead. Oncologists definitely are finding themselves in really challenging positions. I've heard stories about practices where they know at the start of a given week that they do not have adequate stores of carboplatin to treat all the patients for whom they believe that would be the optimal therapy. And, and then they are left having to decide 
really almost like uh, wartime triage, decide which patients are most likely to benefit. And in fact, national organizations now like ASCO and NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Care Network, ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, are, are suggesting that in a case like that, that, that the oncologist prioritize availability of the drug for the patient who is most likely to be cured. That makes oncologists feel terrible um, because we don't like to make life or death decisions like that uh, without, without considering patient input um, and, and, um, and just without being able to provide what we think uh, is optimal for a given patient. It's really an unpleasant um, and, and unfair position. I've heard these drugs cost around 15 to 23 per vial is according to the U.S. Pharmacopoeia. Um, but obviously, you know, many other cancer drugs are very, very expensive. So how is, you know, the patient switching um, from the base drugs to these more specific, possibly very costly treatments? How is that impacting payers on the payer side? It's a good question. I, I think in aggregate, uh, this problem of shortages is a much bigger problem from the standpoints of efficacy and toxicity in the way I described than it is of cost. The reason I say that is that drugs like carboplatin and cisplatin are extremely um, inexpensive. And what is happening, you know, as I described uh, a few minutes ago, is that Oncologists are either prioritizing these drugs for certain patients, perhaps they're lowering the doses a bit, or they are swapping these drugs for similar but non-identical drugs. On average, we're still talking about relatively inexpensive therapies that they're switching to. One caveat, though, that comes to mind where cost may be a substantial problem is in a scenario where we're seeing examples of swaps like that, where a patient goes from an IV drug, say 5-fluorouracil, to an oral drug, say capecitabine or zolota, and the cost-sharing impact of that swap can be really big for the patient. On average, we believe that those swaps have similar efficacy and toxicity, the 5-FU to capecitabine, uh, but the cost-sharing impacts can be significant, and that can really cause problems for a patient and even reduce the likelihood that the patient is able to obtain or stay on the treatment. Right. So in a November episode of Definitively Speaking, you spoke with host you spoke with host Justin Steinman about the connection between cancer and clinical depression, which I thought was very interesting. And I can imagine the shortage might increase those rates. Um, and then, you know, I know this is speculative, but what other outcomes are we potentially looking at here other than obviously survival rates and treatment rates? That's a great question. I, I, I agree that a patient's mental health is a major outcome risk here. Simply knowing that I'm unable to get the optimal therapy because one of the drugs that comprises the optimal therapy is unavailable to me would undoubtedly increase uh, anxiety and possibly depression. That's true uh, without question. I, I also worry quite a lot about survival outcomes 
I think what what's happening as a result of the shortages is that patients are being treated with uh, alternative versions of regimens that haven't been evaluated. And that, I think, does mean that some patients' survival will be compromised. In oncology, no outcome is uh, as important as as long-term survival. And if that's compromised, uh, it, it's, it's just a massive concern. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, it's terrible to think about. And I can't imagine what it's like in hospitals right now. But I guess I'm curious um, if you think that hospitals will, if they're maybe their buying practices or stocks will um, be changed as a result of this, I mean, outside of government intervention. Um, because I've seen that maybe when this shortage was first being reported, that some hospitals kind of hit the panic button and bought out a lot of stock. Um, so I guess I'm wondering how they'll change their buying practices, if any, in the future to react more appropriately. I don't think that any purchasing response has the potential to materially prevent this problem or like really fix it. Um, for for the long term. In other words, stockpiling drug at the first sign of a potential shortage or at news of a potential shortage may result in short-term benefits for patients in that given system. But because, um, but because we're talking about often used drugs um, and because drugs don't last indefinite periods of time, I don't think that that sort of materially changes the landscape for patients. I really believe that the only way to change the landscape for patients is to ensure that shortages like this don't happen in the first place. Where do we go from here? I mean, I know we've talked about a lot of different solutions and um, different ways to mitigate this, um, but I guess if there's anything else that we haven't discussed in terms of how you know the industry, as in doctors and hospitals and insurance companies, can adapt to meet patient needs. We have to find ways as a, as a policy matter to ensure that manufacturers have incentives to create low-cost, old standby drugs alongside new and higher-cost drugs, uh, and in that way ensure that the industry has what it needs to treat patients in, in, optimal, in optimal ways. I believe that we can effectively get this done if we bring our, you know, if we bring the various stakeholders together and, and lobby for, for changes. I am not a policy guru who knows, uh, you know, exactly what policy measure is the right one. My suspicion is that there are lots of options. Um, but, but what is certain is that if we don't do anything material, uh, this is going to happen again. It has happened in the last decade. It happened before that, and it will continue to happen until this issue of insufficient incentives for manufacturers to create inexpensive but important drugs is addressed by the government. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Norton, and for your insight on this challenging situation. Thank you. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Next week, we'll wrap up the series on cancer drug shortages. And for International Left-Handers Day, we'll hear why lefties might be a missed opportunity in brain research. 
So look for that episode Friday morning. And that's the bottom line from the top line.